God is good. Amen, exactly right. And maybe you're even walking through a difficult time right now. And I want to remind you that even in our difficulties, God is good. Because it promises us in Romans 8.28 that he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even in the hard times, God is still good because he's making us more like his son. Isn't that good news? He's always good, always good. Well, uh, I have no doubt that this uh, week VBS was monumental in many ways. I came on Friday morning for a little bit, the last part of it, to see and all the kids and the workers working hard. It was exciting to see all that they were doing and listen to the Bible story and going around and seeing all the different stations and the food they got to eat. That was always my favorite part of VBS was the food. Um, and I, I didn't know of a summer without VBS. I don't know if any of you are like that, that you grew up and you went to VBS every, every summer, vacation Bible school. I mean, I didn't know that you could not go have a summer. I didn't know you could have a summer without VBS. That's just how I grew up when going to VBS all the time. And, 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 and it's there every day during VBS, all those years, probably like from kindergarten through sixth grade, I heard the gospel every single day at VBS. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, and I heard the gospel every day at my home. I heard it in the, the weekly meetings of our church during the out the week, heard the gospel a ton. But I promise you that those VBS times, the seed of the gospel was planted in me, um, were, were monumental in my life. And God used those seeds during those weeks that I went to VBS to open my heart to the gospel the very first time when I was 12 years old and changed my life. VBS is, is so important. I'm so thankful that our church sponsors VBS and we're able to have it again, to have over 100 and some kids be able to be here and hear the gospel on a daily basis. Uh, what a blessing to be a part of church that values that. Guys, VBS isn't dead. The, the old, old story still works, doesn't it? And the old way, way of loving kids on a daily basis, and them hearing the gospel and seeing the gospel lived out in front of them, it works because it's God's plan for them to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And maybe you're one of those people um, uh, that, that went to VBS growing up. We, maybe you didn't know a summer without VBS. Our kids like didn't know a week of the summer for a while without VBS. My wife would find all the VBSs in town we were living in, and they go to VBS this week, and the VBS this week, and the VBS this week. Boy, uh, it, they were excited. You have to ask our kids what they thought about that. But they were VBS all the time. And but maybe you're like that. You were at VBS a lot. You went to vacation Bible school growing up, and you heard the gospel. But you're here this morning, and you never responded to what you heard. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and, and you've never been to VBS and you've heard the gospel and haven't responded. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard the gospel. You've never heard the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. That's the greatest news ever told, ever. And maybe you're like, what in the world does gospel even mean? And, and often we use words that we don't define, and we use words in church and other places that we don't define, we just assume everybody knows it. The word gospel means good news. It's good news. And, and Paul gives a summary of that gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 and 4. He says that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's a summary of the good news. And you may be still thinking, well, why is that good news? What's so good about that, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to scriptures? Why is that good news? Here's the good news, because the God of all the universe, 
the great and powerful, almighty, holy, perfect, gracious, loving, just God created this world and he created mankind. He created men and women. And he created them to have a relationship with him. And they had a relationship, a perfect relationship with, with him. And they walked together and they talked together and had this wonderful relationship. And then mankind decided they had a better idea. And they decided to turn from God's way. They listened to the enemy and turned from God's way and from trusting in God's plan. And they decided to go on their own plan. And that separated them from God. And because, yes, God is loving. He's a loving God, but he's also just. And therefore, a just God must punish sin. And right now, the problem was that mankind was separated from God because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, what we deserve is we deserve the just death that, we, that God gives, the justice, that we say the just wrath of God. God's wrath isn't like our wrath. God's wrath is just. It's right all the time. It's righteous. We deserve to be put to death. We deserve God's judgment in a place called hell. That's what we all deserve, all of us. We've all sinned. Here's the good news. That's where we stand without Christ, separated from God because of our sin. But here's the good news. He did love us so much, and he took care of the issue. The issue was we were sinful and therefore condemned, and he sent his son, Jesus, the perfect God-man, to die in our place, to pay the sin debt that we all deserved, all of us, everyone in this room, everybody in the history of this world, except for one, Jesus. But he sent Jesus to die in our place to, pay, to be our substitute and pay for our debt and bridge that gap. Isn't that good news that he loved us that much? He loved us that much. So what's our response to that? Well, the Bible says it uses two words and they go hand in hand. We need to repent. We need to turn from trusting in ourselves and the deceitfulness of sin. And we need to turn and trust in God's provision for our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we respond. We turn from trusting, repent, and we put our faith or our trust in what Jesus did on our behalf. I hope you've done that this morning. And my prayer is if you haven't done that this morning, this will be the morning that you do that. This will be the day that you come into right relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is you'll respond to the gospel this morning. You've never done that this morning. And some of you are in here thinking, aren't we supposed to do this at the end of the message? Who says why don't we go to youth camp and wait to share the gospel to the last day? Why, why do we do that? I mean, today is the day of salvation, isn't it? There shouldn't be an urgency to hear the gospel and receive the gospel and make sure that everybody has heard the gospel so they can receive the gospel. That's why Jay's in Brazil right now. He's training people in Brazil to go places he's not allowed to go or any other American, to go in places where they've never heard the gospel so they too can have the opportunity to hear the gospel. We can never take this for granted, can't we? Am I a little passionate about this? You bet. Because it changed my life and God sent his son into the world to save sinners, which includes me, includes you, includes everybody who's ever walked the face of this earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for VBS. We thank you for the workers. And we thank you for the gospel. And Lord, I pray we would never, ever take for granted what you did for us. We would never get over it. That you loved us so much, you sent your son to die for us so that we might have life and forgiveness and know you.
So, Lord, I do pray that you would work on all of our hearts. Lord, we need the gospel every day, whether we received it before or not. We need it every day. We need your good news. We need the power of Christ living in us. And, Lord, for those this morning here who don't know, you have never responded by turning from trusting themselves and turning and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin. Lord, I pray that you would move on their heart, open their heart like you did at Lydia, that they might hear the gospel, receive the gospel, and be made new, may be made your sons and daughters. Lord, would you do that this morning? And Lord, now as we, we turn our attention to our time and your word this morning, Lord, I pray you would also open our hearts and our minds and do what only you can do, and that is to teach us your word so that we might live your word and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our series in First Timothy. Here we go. It's a series entitled uh, Be Strong in Grace, and this morning is part 19, entitled Not a New Convert and Have a Good Reputation. Not a Good Convert and Have a Good Reputation. This is number 19, and, and so if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to encourage you to open it. If you have a copy of God's Word and, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at 1 through 7, specifically verses 6 and 7. Um, and this morning, we're gonna, when we cover verses 6 and 7, we're going to be finishing the qualities or characteristics or qualifications of elders in God's church. That's what we're going to be looking at specifically this morning. Uh, but before we examine those that verses 6 and 7, I'd ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read our passage of Scripture uh, together this morning. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, would you read with me? It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity." But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You may be seated. As we read his word, we can always be confident Well, God will use his word to make us more like his son. Well, and examining um, the, the calling and qualifications of elders, we have been reminded that every one of the, these character qualities of elders uh, is also to be true of all people who follow Jesus, isn't it? In fact, we could go, and we have during this series, uh, 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 this part of 1 Timothy, we can go to other places in the Bible and show it's not just for elders. It's for everyone, everybody who follows Jesus. These characteristics, these qualities are to be true of all of us as we mature in our walk with Jesus. So that therefore, this passage is not just for those who are an elder, who aspire to be elder, but it's for all of us. And we've reminded you each week of that just as a reminder. Uh, so you'll, you'll, you'll stay locked in and not fall asleep, okay? Uh, and as we work through these characteristics, Jay and I both emphasize also, these are not something you work for. These qualities and characteristics are not something you work to attain. These are things that are true of those who are having the Spirit of God work these things in and through our lives. It's the overflow of the Spirit's work in our life, or as we would say, it's the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are through the Spirit, and so are many of these, and some of them are the exact same words as that. 
Last week in, in our series, Jay covered the qualification for an elder found in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his family well, or must manage his household well, depending on your translation. And Jay masterfully, as usual, uh, illustrated this quality by going to a story in 1, Timothy, uh, 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. It was a story about a man named uh, Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. And Hannah, if you know the story, she had no children. She was barren, and that was shameful in her day. And, and thankfully, uh, Elkanah, as, as a godly man, would take his family every year to go to Shiloh at the tabernacle to make sacrifices to the Lord. They would make this trip. And, and after many years of doing this and being mocked by Elkanah's uh, uh, other wife, just throwing this out here, other wife, that's never good. In, it's never good to have another wife if you have one right now. And it's never good. All right, it's, if you go look and read the Bible, it's never good when a guy has more than one wife. It wasn't God's intention. And even though Elkanah was a godly man, this was a weakness in his life. And he, this one wife would make fun of Hannah because she had children, and Hannah had none. And one of those times when she went to the temple, they were there to worship the Lord, she went to the temple on her own. If you remember the story from last week, maybe you've read the story before, but if you've never read it before, here's what happened. She goes to the temple, and she begins to pray. And as she prays uh, to God, uh, the priest at the time, Eli, thinks she's drunk and comes and says, hey, what's wrong with you, woman? Are you drunk at the temple? I'm not drunk. And he basically steps back and apologizes. Well, after they go home from this trip, at some time, uh, she is uh, with child, and then she gives birth to a boy named Samuel. And after Samuel is weaned, and she had made this promise to the Lord in the prayer, uh, Elkanah and Hannah took him to the t tabernacle, and there they gave him back to the Lord, just as she had promised that they would do. He, she left her son, he was weaned, and left him there. And because she had promised the Lord he would do that. Well, Jay pointed out at this time uh, that God was king of Israel. He was the king of his people. And Eli and his, was a priest, and his two sons, uh, were Hophni and Phinehas, were the liaisons between God and the people. They, they were ambassadors between God and the people. They were the go-between between God and his people. And then Jay pointed out that Eli had not invested in his sons like he needed to. And they were called wicked scoundrels. How would you be called a scoundrel? I mean, that's the, to me, it's not like a, a positive thing or a, a compliment to be called a scoundrel. They were called scoundrels. And, and if you're called a scoundrel in the Bible, you're a scoundrel. Whatever that means, it's not good. They, that's what they were, and they showed themselves to be scoundrels. And, and, and instead of drawing people to God, they were pushing people away from God. And yet their, their, their job was to draw people to God. So God replaced them with other priests. It's a pretty cool story. You ought to go read it there in 1 Samuel. Not right now, though. Wait till you get home, all right? It's a really neat story. God also knew that Eli was unreliable when it came to, to, to rearing his children, to raising his children in a way to honor God. So he didn't give Eli more children to raise. Instead, he gave Elkanah and Hannah a child to raise because he knew he could trust them to raise Samuel in a godly way. And God then used Samuel, think about this, to anoint David as king of Israel. And from David's line came Jesus, the Savior of the world. And listen to this. It all started with a godly home. It all started with a godly home. God used a godly home to bring about the Savior of the world. Are we surprised at that? And God is still using godly homes to bring about his plan. Thankfully, he's using godly homes. And Jay then reminded us that, that what an ambassador was. An ambassador speaks for, works for, and represents the king. 
and those who are, have placed their faith in Christ, that we're ambassadors for him. We speak on his behalf, re- representing him and his message to the world. And as ambassadors, Jay reminded that we're not free to make up our own message. That's, we're not given that. We're not given the, the opportunity, hey, we get our own deal. No, no, we bring God's message. We don't speak out of turn. We, we speak what God has called us. And the elders and Jay are, are called here at our church to, to be ambassadors and speak on God's behalf from his word to his people. And, and Jay then pointed out in verses 4 and 5 in our passage in, in 1 Timothy that the word manage was used twice. This is a great observation. Those who manage or serve as managers are much like ambassadors. They don't own the company organization. In fact, they're in, but they're empowered to speak for and work for the company organization. That's what a manager does. That's what an ambassador does. And in verses 4 and 5, the dad of the family is equated with being a manager or an ambassador of the home and family. Dads are not the kings of our homes. We're not the rulers of our homes. We're not the, 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 the owners of our home. We're managers. We're ambassadors. We're stewards of our home and families. However, we do speak on behalf of the king. And Paul wants elders to realize that they're not the owner of their biological family, and they're also not the owner of their spiritual family. Who's the Lord of this church, the king of this church? Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of this church. He's the chief shepherd of this church. Jay pointed out also that Elkanah and Hannah, they understood this, and therefore they invested into Samuel and and preparing him to be what God had called him to be. Jay then encouraged all of us to discern the difference between these two things. You remember this? Hard and harmful. Things that are hard and things that are harmful to our kids. We've got to teach them the difference. When we avoid, uh, have them avoid the hard things, we save them from the hard things when they're young. All right? Uh, that's not good. But when we save them from the harmful things, we save them from the harmful things, that's a good thing. If something's harmful, it's really going to really hurt our kid our child, we need to save them. But when it's just hard, we shouldn't save them. We should let them walk through the hardness because God's going to use it in their life. I think about um, just recently, well, back in May, my um, uh, board, if you... I didn't get a chance to introduce myself. If you don't know me, I'm Brian McKenzie. My name is Brian McKenzie and serve one of the elders here, but I also work for a ministry called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I serve as a director of football in, our, in the Midwest region. And I have a board, and we get together on Zoom a bunch, and then once a year we come together, and, and since we moved to the lake, they all wanted to come to the lake for some reason. They're like from all over the place. They want to come to the lake. And so they come to the lake, and we were at a board meeting, and our board president said this. I'll never forget this. And it impacted every one of us in the room. It goes right along with He said, some people or some parents prepare the path for their children, and other parents prepare their children for the path. Say that again. Some people prepare the path for their children, and some parents prepare their children for the path. My prayer is we would be people and parents who prepare our children for the path, because then we're preparing them for the difficulty that lies ahead, and difficulty will lie ahead. In fact, if they're a follower of Jesus, it we're promised that jo- those who cho- choose to live godly lives, we'll see this in 2 Timothy, will be persecuted. There are difficulties in this life, not just being persecution, just living in this life. And we want to help prepare our children for that so God can use our children in a way that will honor him and use them as part of his grand redemption plan to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Don't we believe we want to be part of that? And that's what God calls us to do as parents. Elders and people who aren't elders, we're all called to invest in our children, to prepare them for the path. Well, with that 
review, uh, we're going to move on now into our next few verses here in uh, 1 Timothy, and that's found in verses 6 and 7. And once again, we're going to examine these two qualifications by first defining them. Okay, what do they mean? And then we're going to look at other portions of God's word to expand on the, the meaning and illustrate the meaning. Now, the first qualification we, we will examine this morning is found in verse 6. If you can see that with me, verse 6, it's not a new convert or a recent convert, a, a new believer. It, it literally means this, not newly planted. That's the literal translation, is not newly planted. Uh, it obviously alludes to a tree that, that has small roots and it's fragile. That's a newly planted tree. It's not been matured by the wind and the rain. If you planted a new plant this summer in the last six weeks and didn't water it, how's that new plant doing? We got like the first rain today we've had in I don't know how long. Somebody would probably tell me a long time, longer than I can remember. Um, but if you, didn't, if you didn't take care of that plant, the roots didn't get very deep and it probably died. Uh, four, four years ago, a friend of mine named Scott Hansen lives out in California. My wife actually sent this is for my 50th anniversary, that just told, 50th birthday, just told how old I am. Um, a few years ago, I like, just like yesterday probably, I turned 50 and my wife sent me to, to spend time with my good friend Scott Hansen in California. And we got a chance one day to hike uh, in the Sequoia, the giant forest. Look at those trees. That's my friend and I at the bottom of that tree. And that wasn't even the biggest one. And that's a big tree. And at the other side there, you can see me. That's a fallen tree, and you can see me standing. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's huge. I had a picture of, we couldn't get close enough to the big, there's too many people waiting in line, to General Sherman, which is the largest tree in the world as far as mass goes. I mean, this thing is amazing. All right, but these giant sequoias, it takes time for them to develop the root system. And listen to this. A a mature sequoia's roots occupy over one acre of land. Right, and over 90,000 cubic feet of soil. Those are some roots, but it takes time for those roots to develop so it can be strong and grow up like that. It doesn't happen like this. You don't plant the, the, the sequoia little seed there and it grows in like this. It takes time. Um, another good friend of mine, Sean Hill, who goes to church here, was reminding me just the other day as we were traveling together uh, that to produce good grapes, a grapevine, it takes three years to produce good grapes. Three years. And it's not just you, you plant it and boom, you start producing grapes. It takes three years. You have to, it goes through pruning. It goes through proper nutrition. It goes through the weather. All those things to help prepare uh, those grapes for us. But it takes three years. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to develop the, the strength and the root system that's going to produce something good, that's going to last and an elder, the point here is that Paul's trying to make to Timothy, an elder needs to be a man who's had time to mature through good and hard times. They're not ready like this. That's not a new comment, not newly planted. If you take someone who's just newly come to faith in Jesus Christ and you put them in a leadership position, that's not a good thing, he's saying. Don't do that. All right? And now look at, the, look at these next two words. You guys are going to, when I do this, you're, you're always worried. I know this. When I do this, so that. You think we're here for a long Sunday morning, right? So that, all right? So this is just pointing to the reason an elder should not be a new convert or a new believer, all right? And, and what is that reason? Well, thankfully, Paul knew that I would be reading this, so he made it real simple, all right? It tells us next. He says, he will not become conceited. Uh, another translation says puffed up. He won't become puffed up. And what it means puffed up, just think about this. 
You've seen me walking around like that. I used to do that when I was about 16, 17, 18, well, 16 through 30 maybe. So, and then I just finally gave up and just let it all drop, right? That's being puffed up. That's pride. It's, being, it's, it's this idea of being conceited. If you place a new convert in a place of leadership, they are susceptible to pride. Pride can easily keep, creep in. They may have some early success and receive a lot of praise for that success as they lead God's people. Man, you're awesome. Way to go. I mean, God really used you today, brother. And you just keep going. And they're just going, whew. They're just, they're just filling it all in. A, a new believer is going to do that. It's hard for people who've been walking with the Lord for a long time not to do that when they're getting all this praise. But a new believer in particular, they, it could lead them to think that the success had to do with their gifting, their, their talents, their energy, their enthusiasm, instead of humbly understanding it's all done by God's grace, that God really doesn't even need them. They need to get to the point in their walk with Jesus where they figure out that God really doesn't even need them. And then they're ready to be used. But a new convert's not ready for that. It takes time for them to mature. And, and, and if we put them in that position, they're gonna, there's a good chance we're putting them in a place where we're going to help them be conceited or have pride. Now notice the warning Paul gives in the last phrase of verse 6. All right? So they will not fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Or another translation says, fall under the same judgment as the devil. So to what is this referring? The same judgment as the devil. The same into condemnation incurred by the devil. Well, there's many Old Testament passages actually that, that that, that Paul could have been thinking of, um, and he probably could be thinking all of them together. So I'm just going to show you one, all right? And that found, is found in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. Listen to this and tell me if this might not describe somebody in our passage. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, taffas, and diamond, beryl, oxen, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in a gold where your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian, cherubim. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Um, you, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a guardian, of, a guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes. So we see here in this prophecy that this, first of all, this is, it's an interesting passage of scripture. It, it has kind of dual meaning. It's like talking about the king of Tyre, but as you read through some of these, there's no way it could be talking about a human. No way. If you go down, which one of these don't talk about a human? And a lot of this in this part of the passage does not talk about a human, clearly. He's talking about someone else. He's talking about a cherubim, someone who was an angel that served God that was cast down. And we know that Jesus tells us that Satan was cast down. And this is talking about Satan. Uh, and the condemnation or judgment incurred by the devil was demotion. Listen, demotion. Here's a picture I want us to see. A demotion from a high position to a low position. That's, that's what Paul's wanting us to think about. Being demoted from a high position because of pride to a low position. And Paul says the same can be true of a new convert if you place them in a position like an elder. Quickly, they can become prideful and conceited and all of a sudden, they're going to incur that same judgment, that curse, came condemnation, go from a high position to a low position. They're going to be humbled, and it's not going to be pretty. 
So that's why we don't want to do that to a new believer. We're warned of the dangers and consequences of a simple, simple pride throughout the Bible. Uh, if you look with me it, it, here in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The cure for sinful pride is obviously humility. As Jesus made clear in Matthew 23, 11, and 12, look what he says. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And the best way that I've found to practice humility is serving others. When you're in a place of service and putting others before yourself, God uses that to, to bring about humility in our hearts. We come under people for the betterment of them. And Jesus did this in Mark 10, 45. This is why he came. The Son of Man, listen, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The king of all the universe came in human form, not to rule over us, but to serve us, to humbly serve us. And if Jesus can humbly serve, can't we? He wasn't full of pride, and of all people that could have been full of pride, Jesus could have been because he had a right. He was all-powerful, but he didn't. He came to serve. And this kind of servant's heart takes time to develop in every one of us. It takes time to develop humility. And in fact, it takes all of our life to develop humility, if we're all honest. Uh, I used to think I was humble, then I got married. Then I thought I was humble, and then we had children. And it kept reminding me I wasn't near as humble as I thought. I was a little bit more about me. And God had to use all kinds of things, difficulty, to bring more humility, not all humility, but more humility in my life. And this is why it's so important that we don't place a new convert in the position of elder. So my, my hope is, is that the Lord would protect us, protect all of us from sinful pride that will end in being humbled and may protect our church from placing someone who is a new convert, who's not ready to be an elder in that position, not only for their sake, but for all of our sakes. Let's now turn our attention to the last qualification of an elder found in, in verse 7. This is the last of the passage and in 1 Timothy 3. Look with me at the words. All right. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. The word reputation means well thought of or respected. All right. It, yes, it's important that he has a good reputation in the church. And that's a given. Obviously, he wouldn't pass mustard in, this, in the church if the, this, this man being lifted up possibly to an elder uh, if he didn't have a good reputation, he's probably not going to become an elder, right? But he also needs to have a good reputation outside of the church, those who don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Now, notice the word, and this is, and again, you're going to be going, oh, boy, we're going in one word this time, must, must, all right? So the word must, this little word is significant, I'm telling you. It's very significant understanding, not only this verse, but the whole passage, the whole passage, this word, must, all right? How in the world can that be? Well, look back with me at verse 2. There's another must. Must be above reproach, right? These two words serve, and this is not by accident, they serve as a bookend to the passage. It begins must and ends with must, and Paul is trying to point something out to us. Look with me at those words there in, in verse 2. Must be above reproach, all right, or sometimes I used to say blameless. It's the overarching quality of an elder. We talked about this. Oops. And an elder must not break the technology or he will be disqualified. But he must be, it's the overarching quality. It means, remember, it's free from accusation. It's like Teflon. 
doesn't mean he can't be accused of something. But if you think about Teflon plan, it's throw it on the pan and it doesn't stick. It may be an accusation, but it won't be true. It cannot stick to the elder. He's above reproach. Uh, it doesn't mean they won't sin uh, they, they, but, but, and, or has no weaknesses they do, but his life will be above reproach. And, and then the, the fact that he's above reproach has nothing, listen to this, to do with his education has nothing to do with success in business or his occupation, has nothing to do with his amount of money or position in the community. Instead, it has everything to do with his character and example. That is someone who's above reproach. We then proceeded over the next several weeks to look at verses 2 through 6, which list all these qualities or characteristics of someone who is above reproach. What does it look like to be above reproach? And that's what all these characters are, characteristics are telling us. This is what it looks like to be above reproach. Now in verse 7, we see a result or outcome of positive consequences of being above reproach. I love that you all are looking at the passage and not me. You're looking there. Didn't I say verse 7? And everybody went, whoop, verse 7, what's he saying? I love that. Right? We want to be Bereans. We want to search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying or anyone else who stands there is true. He says, this is what happens. Those who are above reproach, all right, those who live a life that are above reproach will have a good reputation. That's why he's connecting must be above reproach and must have good reputation. And how do they get a good, good, good reputation? They live a life that's above reproach. And then they are given a good reputation. That's how this connects. You all see that? We got four people. Great. All right. Well, the rest of you will catch up in a second. I'm kidding. Well, if our lives are above reproach, characterized by all those things in verses two through six, we will be well thought of and respected and have a good reputation with those outside the church. Our Lord Jesus was well thought of. Listen, by Pilate, who represented the world system. Look what it says in John 19.4. Pilate went out again and said to him, said to them, this is the, him, Jesus before the crowd. They're all saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate keeps trying to, actually, if you look in John, 14 times Pilate had a chance. 14 times Pilate had a chance because he knew he was not guilty to let him go. This is the last one. All right, this is the last, this is the 14th time. See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Even before the world, Jesus was found faultless. He had a good reputation if they would really look. When Paul found Timothy in Lystra, I love what it says this. Notice what it says. This is Timothy. This is who this book is written to. Look what it says in Acts. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek, and then verse 2 is not up there, and that's my fault. Um, it says this. It says, he was well thought of by the brethren. Timothy was. That's what it says. He was, he was respected. He had a good reputation. A good reputation is essential for leaders in the church and for all followers of Jesus Christ. And why is having a good reputation important? All right. Well, Paul tells us again in verse 7, so that he will not fall under reproach in the snare of the devil. Here we got the devil again. You're talking about the devil this morning. And I just want to tell you, tell you just briefly, all right, that the devil is real. This is not the guy that, this is, my, this is my high school mascot, the Red Devils, Russell Red Devils in Kentucky. It's not a guy with these little, uh, you know, ears, it's their horns that stick up and has a pitchfork and this ponytail. That's not the devil. It's, all, it's interesting, my, growing up, my dad was pastoring our, our local town, First Baptist Church, and he would yell for the devils every Friday night when I was playing. That's kind of strange, but that's what he'd do. He'd yell for the devils. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a real being that we talk was an angel, and he fell. And I also want to just a couple things here because we can get way too 
hooked up. He's real. He hates us. He's after us. But let me just see. He is not equal to God. He is not omnipresent. Yes, he's the God of the, he's a small G God of this world and, and controls the world system. Yes. But that, he is not omnipresent and he is not equal to God. He has limited, he can only do what God allows him to do too. Think about that. Go read Job. All right, just, just, yeah, he's real. He's a bad guy. All right, so just throw that out there as you think about the devil. I want you to get sidetracked thinking he's more than he is, but he's real, and, he's in, and, he, and he hates us. And it says, that here's the reason, all right, we want to have a good reputation so that we will not fall into reproach, the snare of the devil. The word reproach means extreme disgrace. And the snare of the devil is a trap. He's got a trap out there in this world system for all of us. And he knows just, his, his, his minions know just where we can fall up, where we're weak, and that's where he'll set the trap. If you remember back in James, we talked about temptation, and it used words for, like, fishing lures. He's got a lure that, boy, just shiny enough. He knows if you're a bass or a perch or whatever you are. He knows exactly how to trip us up. He knows how to snare us. The devil wants to bring disgrace on Christ and his church. He wants to discredit the gospel. The best way that he can do this is have one of Christ's followers, especially leaders in the church, to trip up publicly out in the community, causing people to question the power of the gospel and the way it can change people's lives. That's what he wants to do. And yes, this tripping up, listen closely, can be things like drunkenness at the local bar, being harsh toward your neighbor, being violent, being dishonest in a business deal, slamming people who don't agree with you on social media. Slamming people who don't agree with you on social media, out for the whole world to see, I just say I'm not, not, not necessarily our church. I'm embarrassed about the church of God in the United States, the way that's happened in the last year and a half. Embarrassed. You think people are going to have what we got if that's the way that we act? I say we. I'm talking to everybody outside of our church because we would never do that. All right? But that's what's happened. All right? That, that, that shames the gospel. It can be pretty, that, that's pretty, we know that. Oh, yeah, those are terrible things. And with that, just think about this. We live in a world right now. We have an opportunity to shine Jesus like never before. Because it would be so different from our world. So different from our world. But it can also be the things like this. You can also be, it can be subtle. Like not getting, even getting out in our community to meet people and shine the law of the gospel. That, we, that, we, that we, we go hide somewhere in our holy huddle and we never get out amongst our people to gain a good reputation. It can be like that. Or it can be like this. My dad, as I mentioned, pastor for many years. And I remember at one time, one of our, our, our associate pastors got dismissed from the church. And I thought, what happened to this guy? You know, and, and my dad, when I was little, he didn't tell us. That he, was, he saved us from those kind of things. And I found out later when I was older, my dad, I said, whatever happened, I won't give his name because he might listen to this. He's probably going to know who this is if he listens to it anyway. But we're going to say this, and I think he's grown past this. But he was going around to all the local businesses and asking for the pastor discount. Hey, can I get 50% off this? Can I get 50% off this? Can I, and, and my dad started getting calls. We didn't live in a big community about this guy. Hey, so-and-so showed up, and he's asking for a discount, like 50% off. I mean, and, and, he, and then he'd get a call the next week and get a call the next week, and, he, and, 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 and they sat down and talked with him about it. Oh, I'm sorry. And then he got a call the next week. He was just moving from one person to another, just thinking they would never find out. And it was killing his reputation in the community. Hey, if somebody wants to give you a discount, great. But to expect one, that's wrong. People have to make a living, right? They have to make a living, yeah. And if they can give you a discount, great. But don't go asking for one. And, and it was shaming. The enemy had known this guy's weakness, and it was shaming the gospel in the church and shaming his reputation. 
When our lives are above reproach, we will have a good reputation with those outside the church, and, and we will earn, listen to this, we will earn a hearing of the gospel. We get the opportunity then to share the gospel, the good news as they look at our life. Peter addresses this actually in 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, in studying this passage, I believe the day of visitation is this, the day that he visits that person with the gospel. The day that they hear the gospel and they think about you. Oh, man. Bob, yeah, I can see it in Bob's life. That's not what happened to Bob and why he acts like that. And, and then this other person sharing this guy they got with the, the gospel and they're hearing it. The good news that Jesus came to save them from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Wow, I can see that now. And that's what Peter's exhorting us to do. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard this quote? Preach the gospel often and when necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that quote? If you ever heard that quote, it's attributed to a couple of different people. I'm not sure exactly who it came from, but I think it's used out of context. This is how I think often it's used. Preach the gospel often and when necessary, use words. It's an excuse not to use words. Never mention the name of Jesus. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to be a good guy. I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to be good to my neighbor. I'm going to help the poor and all those kind of things. Hey, people who don't know Jesus can do that. Listen to this. The gospel is a verbal, it's a message. They have to hear or have to read it. That's why we go to the ends of the earth. We have to tell the gospel. What living a good life does and having a good reputation gives us a chance to actually share that message verbally. Just seeing somebody live a good life is not the gospel. It's the evidence of the gospel, but that person doesn't know that. When we live a good life, we now have earned the respect and the opportunity and have a reputation. Now when we speak the gospel, they'll listen. You see that? It's not, it's not either or. It's both and. Live a life, have a good reputation, be above reproach, and then speak the gospel and watch what God does. Good news, the good news. May God enable us to have a good reputation with those outside the church so that the good news of Jesus coming into the world to save sinners will be heard by all. Well, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, a couple of things. We can pray and we can ask God, Lord, protect me from pride Protect me from pride and instead help me practice humility. Lord, do whatever it takes to root those other aspects of pride in my life out. And, Lord, and then ask the Lord to empower us to live lives that are above reproach, that we have a good reputation so that we can preach the gospel and people will hear and listen to our words. My hope is, as I said from this morning, the good news that Jesus came to die for the sin of the world and if you trust in that good news and what Jesus did, you will be in him. You will be a Christian. You will respond right to the gospel. I pray that you'll do that this morning. And if you already know them, let the gospel flow through your life in such a way that you will earn the respect to be able to share the gospel with your lips so they can know that they're sinful, separated from God, and God sent his son to die on the cross. Well, before we pray again, just want to remind us that Jay is in Brazil, and he is doing what we're talking about. He's not only living the life, but he's telling and empowering people who can go into places where people have never heard the gospel so they can hear the good news that Jesus died for them as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for our time this morning, our time of worship through song, to worship through song with the children, uh, of worship through prayer, of worship 
through the preaching and the hearing of your word. And Lord, we are again at your mercy. Lord, we need your power. We need your grace. We need your spirit flowing through us in such a way that we can live lives that are full of humility, live lives that are above reproach, so that we can have reputations that are good in our community. So when we speak about the gospel, we won't be disqualified. That people will listen and believe. Lord, will you use us to take the gospel to our community for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close this morning. I want to give you another New Testament benediction. Again, the word benediction means a blessing. And this is a blessing that comes from Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Would you stand with me? Now may the God of peace who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.